Future Pulse, Patients First, investigating innovative cardiovascular research with a patient-oriented clinical outcome focus. I'm Dr. Thomas Nero, clinical and interventional cardiologist and director of cardiovascular research at CAFC. Good morning. I'm Dr. Thomas Nero. Today we're going to be talking with Dr. Aaron Bagish. Dr. Bagish was the founder of the Cardiovascular Performance Program at the Massachusetts General Hospital and is now a professor of sports cardiology at the University de Lausanne in Switzerland. He has been the team physician for USA Soccer, USA Rowing, and the New England Patriots, as well as being the medical director for the Boston Marathon. He now serves as a consultant for the IOC as well as FIFA. Today we're going to be talking about ischemic coronary artery disease in the athlete. There's a lot to unpack there, but we'll be going over cardiovascular risk assessment, use of coronary artery calcium scores, as well as ongoing research. It was a super interesting discussion, and I think you'll enjoy it. Welcome to Patient Pulse. I'm Dr. Tom Nero, and today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Aaron Bagish. Aaron, thank you again for being available to us to talk to about these really, really important issues about exercise, coronary artery disease, and exercise prescription. Thank you. My pleasure, Tom. Great to be with you. So. Let's start off with the basics is what do you think about exercise and coronary artery disease and specifically about avoidance of coronary artery disease? So I think exercise is one of the most effective ways to reduce our risk factor profile. So it moves blood pressure, lipids, sugar metabolism, all in the right direction. So it should be thought of as primary prevention for everyone. Um, That being said, no amount of exercise um, attenuates risk factors completely. So when people that exercise a lot but have high blood pressure, have high, have high cholesterol, have problems with sugar metabolism, their exercise is not going to cure them. And it's a mistake for us as physicians or for our patients to consider themselves curing their risk by exercising a lot. But on the flip side of that, that there's no level of exercise that's too little, that the most important thing is getting people to put their shoes on and getting them off their keister. Yeah. I mean, if there's one thing that there's no argument about, that is that even as little as 10 minutes of moving your body a day has measurable benefit. So there's no such thing as I don't have enough time to exercise. Just turn the, turn the walk into a jog, use the stairs rather than the elevator. That's how we really start getting healthier as a population. The very common question that I get is, what is the shortest bout of exercise that I can do? Is golf exercise or do you have to do something that is more continuous in order to get that benefit? Well, so again, I think the, the, the first place to start is that something is better than nothing. So if you had to choose sitting on the couch and watching sports all day versus going to the golf course and playing 18 holes yourself, you're getting something from playing 18 holes of golf. I think it becomes a little more complicated when we start trying to differentiate physical activity, of which golf certainly is, from exercise, which is a modern construct that talks about some set level of intensity and duration. So I know people that walk briskly 18 holes of golf. That in my book, is some form of exercise versus riding a cart. Um, so again, something's always better than nothing. And do you think that there is too high a level of exercise? I think everyone has a threshold above which they start doing themselves more harm than good. I would say it's probably less a cardiovascular story and more a musculoskeletal one. Everyone's body is going to find a point at which their, their joints, their muscles um, can no longer support that level of training. And that's a very individual thing. For some people, it could be five hours a week. For some, it could be 25 or 30 hours a week. That's a function of genetics, background, all that sort of stuff. But yes, there is 
a ceiling for everyone, but it varies tremendously across people. So someone who you're trying to stimulate and in going into exercise, and I guess there's two, two groups of patients, one who have known coronary disease and, and those who, have, who don't have coronary disease. Do you recommend any specific testing before you give them their exercise prescription? Depends who they are. If they're young and risk factor free, there's no test I'm going to do that's going to provide any useful information. So I, again, below the age of 45, 50, no risk factors. You want to start exercising. In fact, you should start exercising. Go do it. In people who are older, and particularly people who are older that have risk factors, I usually do do some form of exercise stress testing to maximal effort to exclude what coronary artery disease primarily, but also inducible arrhythmias. And we can use those tests to help with the prescription as well. And one of the important pieces is trying to exercise them to maximal effort, not just to some predetermined level of 80% of a maximally predicted heart rate or something to that effect. That's exactly right. The, a lot of the things that get master's athletes in trouble only show up in that last 10 to 15% of someone's exercise range. And so stopping a test early because someone's, quote, done enough, not a great way to do it. So let me ask you something a little bit controversial. It's about the use of coronary artery calcification. We know that it's beneficial in large populations to identify risk, but how do you use them? Well, in my master's athletes practice, I do not use it at all certainly see a lot of patients that come with elevated calcium scores who I then do further workups on. The problem is, is that a calcium number in isolation in a very fit active person does not inform risk in 2024. We don't have outcomes data and calcium ends up in coronaries for different reasons than those people from the general population. And what will you do for them? Um, so I'll typically, if the question is risk, I will revert to a maximal effort exercise test to start. And if I have additional concerns about underlying coronary disease, I'll do some form of imaging that actually looks at the coronaries beyond calcifications, usually that's CT angiography. Yeah, certainly in uh, Europe, CT angiography is more available than it is in the United States. I do believe that it's going to become more routine in the United States as we catch up to where the Europeans are and have been for the last 10 years. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think there's so much value from adding the, the angiography to the calcium scoring that if you're sending a patient to the scanner for something, you're going to actually have more action items off of the angiography than you will with the score in isolation. So we've seen in some studies that as we increase up our endurance levels and our peak exercise, that there may be a signal to increasing coronary artery disease. Why do you think that is? Well, up until last year, all of that signal was increased calcification in isolation which again, I just, um, to make, make this very simple, calcification is a nonspecific marker of repair and injury. Coronary arteries kink and twist during exercise, they get microabrasions, they calcify. So there's no question that very, very fit elite level athletes as they age have high CAC levels. We've seen people with no risk factors that have CAC scores of three, three or 4,000. That's not the coronary disease that gets patients in trouble. We are starting to see that some people have soft plaque that come along with it. And in those situations, my synthesis of, of the science is that it's not because of too much exercise. It's because of risk factors, either measured or unmeasured, that go along with that exercise. So really want to make a plug not to scare people away from high level of exercise because of coronary disease. You've talked about other issues that, that people who are exercising or people not need to really be focused in on. Yeah, you're spot on. The list of things that doctors bring to the table are usually the simple things, blood pressure, cholesterol, presence or absence of diabetes, and tobacco consumption. Um, there are, 
is the second list in my practice, and, and the list is family history. You've got to know it, and a concerning family history is an action item. Second is dietary intake. Third is the level of psychosocial stress and what you do about it. And fourth is the concept that we talked about in your previous podcast, and that's periodicity, and that's how you plan your time out. Do you build in enough rest and recovery? And that's really critical. So is, if you don't mind, let's take a couple minutes and dive into those things a little bit, because I think that these specific issues are what people are worried about. With family histories, how do you outrun it, or do you outrun it, or are there other things that you would do if someone has a stronger family history? So first of all, you, you can't outrun your genetics. You're born with your genetics, and even though we don't understand the genetics of, of coronary atherosclerosis perfectly, it tracks through families. It's the real deal. So if dad had his first MI at age 45... Um, you are at risk for having early coronary disease, whether you like it or not. What that does for me is it turns up my gain on looking at all of the other risk factors. It markedly lowers my threshold to be aggressive with, with pharmacology, people that have borderline lipids or borderline cholesterol, because again, it's easy to write those off because people look so fit and healthy. But in that family history, master's athlete, uh, I get very aggressive with risk factor modification. And for dietary recommendations, where do you see the negatives of what master's athletes do uh, and what, they, what you recommend? Yeah, as I said earlier, there's this, um, this common myth that because the furnace burns hot, you can put anything you want in it. Right? That's the idea that if you're burning 5,000 calories a day, you can eat 5,000 calories a day and it doesn't matter. And that may be true in terms of maintaining body weight, but what we eat dictates our coronary health. And the biggest and most common transgression I see in master's athletes is huge consumption of refined sugars. So bread, rice, pasta, anything that's white or beige that can be put in a box, that stuff is poison for the coronaries. And it's more than easy to have a healthy diet that can fuel high levels of exercise without putting that stuff into it. So easy opportunity for improvement there. Yeah. The, uh, the idea that, they, that there's a sports drink that is healthy or that use of a granola bar or a gel is healthy is something that's a bit of an anathemity. It's so true. I will say that, and just to, uh, to give our people in the sports bar industry a little bit of credit, they've made strides toward getting better, right? They've come up with things that have you know, much higher glycemic indexes, things that really don't... Remember the old power bars 20 years ago, right? First of all, they tasted like crap, but second of all, they were just basically digestible glucose, which was okay maybe if you were in the middle of a marathon, Use that as your mid-morning snack in anticipation of a workout. Terrible idea. Yeah, or, or use it as a mid-morning snack in anticipation of you going back to work and having lunch. Right. right? Fair <laughs> enough. So, uh, so stress reduction, uh, which is something that we try to get into. It's hard to do during our uh, active days in the office. But where are you seeing opportunities for that uh, for athletes and for non-athletes? Well, I would say that um, we live in a world where avoiding stress and managing stress is increasingly challenging, right? We are inundated by stressors from the minute we wake up to the minute we go to sleep. Primarily, and what I'm talking about here is the visual medium that we're all, um, how many people, the first thing they do before their feet get out of the bed is check their smartphones to see what emails came in overnight, right? That's not the way we evolved to live. So to some degree, it's unavoidable. But what I really try to encourage people to do, and I try to practice this myself, is to spend time every day away from anything electronic, ideally the last 30 to 60 minutes before sleep at night, nothing, no screen in your face at all, and use that as a time to just quietly reflect. Think about the day, think about the next day, 
Think about what you're doing in life that you like. Think about things you want to change. Do some deep breathing. Do some stretching. Hugely beneficial. And finally, you had mentioned uh, periodicity. And this is something that I don't know whether a lot of our listeners know about. So if you don't mind giving us a quick definition and then what's your thoughts? Yeah. So just very briefly, periodicity is the concept of building cycles of exercise for a specific goal. And periodicity uh, emerges from the sports performance literature. And that is that people understood that you need to think about blocks of training that build up to something. And then importantly, blocks of training that allow you to recover from something. In the medical space, we don't have good literature to show that periodicity impacts outcome. But my experience over and over and over is that the master's athletes that get in trouble with coronary disease are oftentimes the ones that don't build rest and recovery into their annual calendar. So I strongly encourage people to spend at least three out of 12 months a year in what I term active recovery, which is a reduction in volume, whether that's hours or miles, how you measure it, of 50% and avoidance of all high-intensity stuff. It's really an opportunity to let the body, the mind, the heart, everything recover, and I'm a big believer. Well, thank you so much. This has really been a wonderful opportunity. You've done so much for sports cardiology in general, as well as as well as cardiology and the way that we look at, at athletics and exercise as being a important prescription for the avoidance of coronary artery disease and for longevity. And I just can't thank you enough. And you know, beyond that, uh, your work with all the other organizations around the world, including the World Anti-Doping Agency, FIFA, the IOC, the NFL, the, N- the uh, National Soccer Association, everything uh, you've touched in a way touched us. So uh, I just want to thank you again for all your work uh, outside of this. And then finally, I want to thank you for uh, accepting a uh, further discussion on wearables uh, to come in the next few months. Uh, I'm really looking that. Well, it's been my pleasure. And thank you so much for doing this podcast. Anytime we have a chance to talk and share our thoughts, we're making a change. 